No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Sanchez, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So you should feel free to call in at 888-627-6008, or you can Skype your questions. Um, Tonight we have a great guest, uh, and I can't wait to introduce you, but first let me say hello to Maria Sanchez. Maria? How are you? I'm doing really well, Michael. Thank you so very much for asking. And I'm hoping that your weather has calmed down and that your politics has calmed down somewhat. Well, I don't know about the politics, but certainly the weather is. Okay, good. Um, But in our continuing effort to pay homage to women during Women's History Month, we have a really exceptional guest tonight. Uh, But before I introduce her, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that she is a, uh, she and I are both alumni of the University of Maryland and the men's basketball team yet, yesterday beat the University of Connecticut in March Madness and has moved on to the uh, uh, group of 32. So we're very, very proud of the Maryland Terrapins, and I offer that on, on behalf of myself and our guest tonight. Our guest is... Dr. Charlene Drew Jarvis. Uh, Dr. Jarvis was elected six times to the Council of the District of Columbia. Uh, She worked as the head of uh, the Economic Committee on Economic Development. She was involved in many monumental projects here in the district. Uh, She was named one of the most powerful women in Washington by Washingtonian Magazine in 1989. 1994 and 2007, and by the Washington Business Journal, 1985. She is the daughter of legendary doctor Charles R. Drew, uh, who, if you don't know, revolutionized um, uh, uh, blood uh, transfusions and is credited for saving literally thousands of lives during the Second World War. She is the recipient of more than 100 awards for her leadership, including honorary doctorates from Amherst, George Washington University, Oberlin, and a distinguished alumni award from Howard University. Um, Where she she got her master's degree. But we call her doctor not because of the honorary degrees, but because she got her PhD in neuropsychology from the University of Maryland. Which has got to be one of the first things we discussed with her because... I tried to figure out what neuropsychology is, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm not smart enough to understand it. So uh, that'll be our first question to her. But it's an honor to have you with us when we when we when we talk about 
accomplished women. Uh, you're just amazing, uh, Dr. Jarvis. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. I'm more than delighted to be here with you uh, and uh, Maria and uh, your guests uh, and to congratulate you on all of the work you have done over the years uh, oh, in the effort to secure rights of district citizens uh, that every other citizen in the uh, country has the right to have members of the Senate and House who vote on our behalf. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but can we start with an explanation of neuropsychology because I read somewhere that it's it, it, it deals with the interaction of the brain and the mind, and those are terms that I use synonymously. So I didn't understand what the difference, be, you know, what that relationship is. What and and we should point out, as Maria already pointed out, uh, Dr. Jarvis has a PhD from the University of Maryland in uh, neuropsychology. So what exactly is that, uh, doctor? Uh, neuropsychology is the relationship between the brain and behavior. So mm -hmm. the questions that we ask are, um, and the question I asked as a researcher had to do with vision. Um, where in the brain do we process vision, visual information? Where does it go from the eye into the brain? And what kind of information is being processed? So we know in the visual system, there are two systems. One is the what is it system that looks at what we are seeing, um, the color and the shape um, uh, and, and the identity uh, of the object. And the other is the where is it system, which is where is this object in space? And two different parts of the brain do that. So that is the study between the brain and behavior and um, I was interested in vision, but other people are interested in audition, and other people are interested uh, in mental illness, and other people are um, interested in emotions, and other people are interested in memory. And the questions we ask are, where in the brain, what part of the brain, um, or what parts of the brain uh, are responsible for memory, um, if for hearing, and we know a lot more about the brain now. It's really been a, a 20 or 30 year, um, 30, 20 or 30 year magnificent research uh, career path for many people. Uh, we know about the hippocampus, and we know about memory in the hippocampus, and we know that that's what deteriorates over time, uh, for example. And we have a little bit more knowledge about brain and behavior when we're talking about mental illness, but there's a lot still that we don't know. So may I ask one second, yeah, Michael? Go ahead. No, I, go ahead. I'm getting my PhD in psychology, and so uh -huh. my understanding is that psychology focuses more on feelings and emotions, and you focus more on cognition, maybe? No, uh, psychology is the study of behavior. Um, neuropsychology is the study of the relationship between the brain and behavior. Uh, so, in other words, um, a, psych a psychologist can describe behavior, and a neuropsychologist says, ah, that behavior resides in this particular place in the brain. So we're trying to connect the behavior to the actual structure in mm. the brain. Um, and we, we don't talk about the mind in neuropsychology. We talk about the brain. And we don't talk about uh, um, 
we we uh, don't connect the word mind um, except as we are talking colloquially. Um, but no, it, it's um, we 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 define the difference between the two. Psychology is the study of the behavior, what we can describe about a person's behavior, and neuropsychology is um, the connection between that behavior, which is uh, described, and the part of the brain that actually controls that behavior. Mm. Nice. Thank you. And, and, and does research uh, in this field, uh, uh, Dr. Hold, any promise for things like Alzheimer's? Can well, we... indeed it does. Um, yeah. We know a great deal uh, uh, about Alzheimer's. We know about the brain structures which are involved. We know about the, uh, uh, the towel and the, 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 uh, the, the kind of, um, I'm blocking on a name, <clears throat> um, uh, that, the tangles that occur in the brain. We, we know about those things, but what we are trying very hard to understand is what causes those things. Uh, and there have been some recent studies um, that show a correlation between the lack of sleep and Alzheimer's. A correlation is not causal. It means we find that people who have Alzheimer's very often have trouble with sleep. And then we know that there's been research that has indicated that the reason sleep is so necessary is because there are uh, microscopic rivulets or little rivers um, that open up in the brain during sleep that allow the cerebrospinal fluid to actually um, get rid of all the toxins in the brain that are created by actually created by oxygenation. The very fact of taking a, a, of oxygenation creates some sort of what what you'd call trash in the brain. And wow. sleep's purpose is to get rid of all of those toxins. And so it appears that there is a relationship between lack of sleep and Alzheimer's because apparently um, many have not gotten rid of all of those toxins. Now, that's only one hypothesis. There are many. But that seems to be a very um, important uh, relationship between brain and behavior. Well, i got to tell you, it's the one that I'm going to subscribe to when Mrs. Brown gives me a hard time about taking a nap instead of cutting the lawn. I'm certainly going to say <laughs> I'm not napping, I'm detoxifying. Uh, but, and, and it's scary, you know, I think it scares all of us as we get older, right? Because I can tell you, doctor, every phone number I've ever had since I was a child, but sometimes I walk upstairs and I, by the time I get to the top of the stairs, I forgot why I went up there. So, but, well, know, that's so. that's very common, and it's not mm -hmm. it's not indicative of a brain disorder. Um, mm -hmm. it, it 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 is something that happens, um, and it happens very often because our attention is drawn away from what we um, want to do, our intent, to something else. And so, as we get older, we have deficits in both intention. What do I want to do? And attention, paying attention to it long enough to do it. And one of the ways in which you can have strategies to overcome that is before you go upstairs, you say, I am going upstairs to get um, the book that I read last night. 
and you've said it to yourself, which kind of reinforces uh, the intention. So that's not a sign of disorder. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I do. As I'm walking yeah. to the room, I state to myself my intention is to get my glasses so that when I come back, I can that's actually right. read. <laughs> yes, and you have helped yourself pay attention. Absolutely, absolutely nice. true. But, you know, the interesting thing was going from science into, um, into political life because scientists are people who are highly regarded. They are thought to always be working for the common good. Um, their motives are not questioned. Um, and it's interesting going into politics. It, politics is kind of just the reverse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> politicians' yeah. uh, motives are very frequently questioned. They're not always thought to be working in, uh, in the, for the common good. And so um, I find that there was quite a hill to climb actually to come from one career like that, which is a helping career, you know, a research career is a helping career, to a political career, which is also a helping career, where you're using your, your skills to try to deliver um, the, the things that are important to communities to thrive. Well, let me ask you, uh, Dr. Jarvis, I don't want to monopolize you here, but let me ask you, uh, I read that you first got involved in a response to the riots that occurred in D.C. after the Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King assassination. We had riots in 1968, like many cities. I lived on Thomas Circle, which was ground zero for those riots mm -hmm. in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, eight or ten years, well, I wouldn't say that, six or eight years after the riots, still every building that was burned out on 14th Street uh, from Thomas Circle, five or six blocks north, none of them were, were, were rehabbed. I mean, it was, it was like a war zone when I lived there, and I lived there six or eight years after the riots. They were really, really bad. So is that what motivated you to get involved? And you were involved for a long time. Yeah, I was. Go ahead, Maria. I just wanted to, to ask that about your desire to get into politics versus leaving research and then into academia and then being a wife and mother as a woman who has four children. That's what I'm, I'm curious about. But please answer the senator's question first. Thank you. Sure. Um, it, the reason I got into politics was that I uh, became very concerned that the uh, city in which I was born went through such destruction after the riots uh, from, uh, that occurred after the death of Martin Luther King. And I kept going to, out to Bethesda and to my research, research and I kept feeling that I was uh, a part of a very important uh, series of research at a very prestigious uh, institution at NIH, but that um, I felt I had a real tug as a native Washingtonian to figure out how do you rebuild a city? Uh, after uh, devastating riots, and who's going to take a hold of that? <clears throat> and I, I continued to ask myself that question, and I asked myself that question for almost 10 years, and I said, well, you know what I am as a scientist is a problem solver. I ask a question. Uh, I do research. I try to get an answer, and I hope the answer applies to something that is um, important 
in terms of human behavior, but those techniques can also be used to look at other kinds of problems. And so I say, well, what would it take uh, to rebuild our neighborhood commercial corridors um, after these riots? Um, <clears throat> and I had witnessed the riots. I lived on Gerard Street Northwest um, at the time, and <clears throat> I was going to the bank, uh, and I, I went to 16th Street. I walked over to 14th Street, and I looked down 14th Street, and uh, and there were fires and looting, and to my amazement, there were police officers who um, Mayor Washington, I learned, had, had indicated that, um, and wisely, uh, that looters would not be shot um, in order to bring order. Uh, and I remember seeing the fires from my third floor window, and I remember the fear because I had young children who were in school and I could not find them. Mm. And all of these mm. things went through my mind as I went to Bethesda every morning and asked myself, well, what is it we should do about this? So I decided that I would run for public office, and I was encouraged to do that by one of my uh, neighbors, actually, uh, um, Betty Strudwick. And I was very fortunate that in a group of 15 people who were running uh, for a public office in 1978, and keep in mind, we'd only had home rule for four right. years. Right. And and 68 was a time when um, those in charge of the district were not people who had been elected uh, from the District of Columbia. It was 1968, and we didn't have home rule until 1974. So we were in an interim period where the question of who's going to do this was one that was much, much on our minds. So I... I ran for public office in a group of 15 people. I have to thank the former chairman of the council, Arrington Dixon, and his wife at the time, Sharon uh, Pratt-Dixon, who um, helped me through that process. And then Arrington, because he was the chair, had the right to appoint chairs of committees. Uh, and Arrington appointed me to the Economic Development Committee, which is exactly where I wanted to be, because it gave me a chance to use... Uh, the tools of my committee um, and of funding by the federal government and of programmatic um, changes uh, in the government to really focus on those commercial corridors. And one of the first things that I had a chance to do um, <clears throat> was to require that national banks coming into the District of Columbia uh, would create community reinvestment plans in the neighborhoods uh, where those riots had occurred. And this is an interesting um, thing for, for everybody who's thinking about statehood for the district. For some purposes, the District of Columbia is already uh, regarded as a state. Mm -hmm. And for the purpose of the Glass-Steagall Act, um, this Glass-Steagall Act separated um, banking from um, equities and from insurance. And it, that bill occurred in 1933 after the Depression, and it put a wall between those activities, and it gave the District of Columbia the right, uh, 
like a state um, to determine um, what banks ought to be doing in terms of reinvesting in their communities. And so I discovered that as a local um, elected official in this case, I had the um, authority of a state. And so I brought these bankers into the committee, and I, I said, we have power here. Uh, and I brought these bankers into the, the committee um, and asked you know, uh, them or made them aware that the District of Columbia could make a recommendation to the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency federally about whether or not these big mergers should occur. And that the oh. only way that I was going to recommend that um, those to my committee and to the council, that those mergers occur was if there was a community reinvestment plan for each one of the merger partners. And um, it was really interesting the, the way in which the, the white-haired gentleman from the <laughs> south or from New York um, came to be a part of an interview by a local elected official, a woman, and an African-American. This is something about which they were unaccustomed. Um, they were so unaccustomed to it on one occasion um, that one of the bankers turned to my male staffer and said to him, so where are we? In yeah. other words, if you say to me that this is something we have to do, I'm more comfortable hearing it from you than I am hearing it from a woman local legislator. Um, and so we did require the banks to have more women and minorities on their boards. We required them uh, to have more uh, bank branches in underserved areas of the community. We required them to focus more on lending uh, in African-American communities. Um, and I must say that while there was some willingness, um, I don't think that we made the kind of dent that I would have liked um, it, because now what we recognize is the manner in which um, unconscious bias can determine outcomes. Um, and we can distinguish between unconscious bias and out-and-out, out, um, you know, clear, conscious um, discrimination. Uh, some of that still goes on, as you know. But we were able to get more women and minorities on the boards, and we were able to, to have community reinvestment plans, and we were able to get more bank branches in underserved areas. And it was a good beginning for me as uh, as a new... Uh, chair of economic development. Did they well, prosper with those additions to the way they were doing business? Did they prosper? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that was, the, that, of course, Maria was the argument, you know, um, that these are communities that have the wherewithal to take out loans and repay, uh, mm -hmm. that businesses have uh, uh, the wherewithal to take out loans and to repay, um, and, you know, that it was in their interest to see that there was a whole other community um, in which they had not focused. And, it, and, and because we intended to help them focus, 
we had, in this case, the support of the federal government, which said, you know, even though you are uh, a municipality for this purpose, you're going to be treated as a state, and you've got the power to make a recommendation to turn down a merger. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny that you say that it still exists, uh, uh, Dr. Jarvis. I just heard an African-American uh, um, woman, member of Congress, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one it was, but she said in an interview to CNN, they were asking about discrimination and sexism, and she said, sometimes it's very hard to tell what is racism and what is sexism, but they both play still play in our lives every day. So um, as we start to approach these things, is there anything that neuropsychology can tell us about racism and sexism? Is there a mind-body connection that you can make physically with those things? Well, certainly um, psychologists have identified implicit bias. Um, and we've actually been doing that for many years. Um, I, I used to teach uh, psychology, and, and we would identify, um, it, it wasn't called implicit bias at the time, because that's kind of a current uh, name, but we understood it to be a, a bias. Um, so if um, subjects in an experiment were shown um, a, a picture um, of two men and asked a white and a white and a black man and asked which man had the knife, um, it, it was always the African-American. Right. Um, that's a bias. Right. Um, to see criminality as a part of, of you know, the identity of African-Americans. There was a very important study that was done by Kenneth and Mamie Clark um, with dolls, um, dolls who were brown and, and uh, dolls who were light or white. And, there, and kids were asked a series of questions about the dolls. And when they asked who was the good doll, it was usually the white doll. Who was the bad doll? It was usually the black doll. Who was good? Who was bad? Who was mean? Who was kind? And for kids at a very early age, actually, um, what we now know uh, is that uh, discrimination has been socialized uh, in this country for many, many, many years. And so young kids had even picked up this identity and these labels, uh, and very much to the surprise of their parents. There were many parents who were simply chagrined by, the, by the, the understanding that these kids had learned this from their environment. Um, and so, yes, uh, psychology uh, has demonstrated over, over the years um, the, the bias that comes when you are talking about black and white or when you are talking about male and female. Uh, yeah, and when we go back to business, Maria, you know, uh, women um, couldn't even get contracts in their names mm -hmm. for, for a long period of time. And credit, right? And credit in their names. Uh, I meant credit in their names oh, for, for, a, for a long uh, period of time. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I worked, I had a group 
women of women in business um, because we wanted to say to the bankers, wait a minute, you've got a whole nother group of people who have the ability to borrow from you and repay it. You, you're excluding uh, this group of people. And you know that w- women-owned businesses are one of the fastest growing, were at one time and continue to be um, fastest growing in the country. Well, in my lifetime, I witnessed my mother went to rent a power tool from a lumber company, and they denied it to her. And she made a huge stink. That's why I remember it. And mm. she was like, what is the problem? I, I, here's my three children, because we hadn't had the youngest yet. And she said, I, I, and they said, our insurance won't cover us renting power tools to females. Mm. Wow. Well, you know, well, there are all sorts of ways, uh, um, all sorts of ways in which rules and laws have been written in order to disadvantage particular groups. There's a wonderful book by Richard Rothstein, um, which lays out the way in which local and federal legislation has um, deeply allowed discrimination in housing. Uh, to go on for many, many years. Um, that that book is a very revealing um, book because it reveals federal and local policies that were determined to make a distinction about who could move into a particular neighborhood and who could get financing to purchase in particular neighborhoods. So the intentionality of law which has acted to discriminate against women, against blacks, against other groups who, who are considered the other, um, is legion. And one of the things that we now have to do, having discovered how intentional um, many of those laws and rules were, is to go back and look at the ball and make determinations about how changes in the law are necessary in order to remove those uh, legal barriers uh, to um, to our own ability to control our resources and to build wealth. And you did that with your initiatives in the District of Columbia by striving to prevent redlining, right? Yes. And I don't know if our listeners know what that is. Do you, do you want to share? Because it's supposed to not exist anymore. <laughs> Well, redlining uh, is actually um, refers to uh, a red line that was drawn on maps um, in areas where uh, lending was not <clears throat> was not going to be uh, encouraged um, by banks. In other words, here is a neighborhood over here that has these zip codes, and that neighborhood is literally redlined. So that federal and local resources need not be made available in those areas, literally. And that's what Richard Rothstein talked about. The Color of Law was the name of his book. And, of of course, those areas that were redlined were deemed to be at risk, right? Because it was people of color. Well, yes. um, Yes. if your question is whether they thought it, that the area was at risk because they wouldn't be able to repay, maybe that was the assumption, but also it was simply out-and-out discrimination about, you know, uh, about 
who was going to be served by the banks. You know, given that, uh, Dr. Jarvis, a few weeks ago we had uh, Michael Eric Dyson on the show, and we asked him this question. Uh, Do we need to go back to the roots of our democracy to ferret some of this stuff out? Then Washington Post today, there's a bill that's been uh, presented in Maryland, and the preamble of the bill says racism, racism is rooted in the foundations of America. And when you think, you know, we both took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and I think it's a wonderful document. I'm sure you do, too. But we have to be real that the framers of the Constitution were rich white men who were basically misogynists. They looked at women as property, and most of them owned slaves. So do we really do we need to go back to the very foundations of America to resolve some of this stuff, in your opinion? Well, I think what we need to do is recognize what that legislation wanted to say, which is um, that this country was built upon. Um, the, the notion that some people are worthy and some people are not, mm. um, and and that it was never the intention um, to permit any other than white, well-to-do uh, men uh, the opportunities to gain wealth, the opportunities to own land, uh, for example. Um, and I read that article this morning, and I said, anybody who is unwilling to include such a phrase in legislation which is designed in part to overcome the past, anybody who can't understand why that's important has not been able to admit to himself or herself that much success and many decisions um, that he or she has made over time were based on these very notions that there were several classes of people and that there was only one that was to be advantaged and that um, that has been the case for years uh, in this country. It's very difficult for people to face um, the fact uh, that this uh, statement about this country being rooted in in racism, it's very hard to under, for them to understand that, that this is the truth about our nation. Yes. Um, and so, what's wh- what is the intention now that we understand that? Well, then we've got to root it out. How do we root it out? Uh, we we um, one of the things we do is go back and look at how. Um, laws were constructed, and we remove barriers. Um, when we're talking about the issue of reparations, reparations to me is about restoring land to people from whom it was stolen, because land is the way wealth is built. Uh, and so uh, for me, that's the important part of reparations. And there are many people of color who can demonstrate that they had ownership of land which was somehow taken away from them by illegal means. Um, and that, that, that land is what could have helped them build that, worth, worth, that, that wealth. Mm-hmm. And that's why Tulsa was burned. 
mm-hmm. because there was wealth building there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I also would love to hear your perspective. One of the things I find interesting about your education is that you graduated from Oberlin, which is an amazing college in Ohio. Um, you went to Howard, which is a historically black uh, college, and then you ended up getting your doctorate at the University of Maryland, where I went, which is just a gigantic school. I think when I was in graduate school, our graduate school was bigger than most colleges in America. Yeah. So did, what, what is it about environment? You've been in all those different environments. Uh, I assume that when you went to Oberlin, it was primarily a white school. And, and then you went to Howard, and then you went to Maryland. What, how, how, how much does environment play in all this, do you think? Well, for me, uh, my choice was Oberlin, because Oberlin was the first um, uh, liberal arts school to admit um, uh, people of color and women. Uh, so for me, that was very that. important, and Oberlin has a very long and storied history uh, in that regard. Uh, I went to Howard University for my master's degree, um, Howard University was very dear to me because I actually grew up on that campus. Um, uh-huh. When my father died, I was I was very young. I was eight. But the memories that I have of my dad were at, at Howard University. Yeah. And uh, growing up on the campus was a wonderful experience uh, for the four for the four children. We uh, we took piano lessons there. We um, we we had wonderful times with the students. Um, we we were exposed to, to so many things on on the university campus that we had access to um, because of my father's relationship to the campus. So for me, that was a, a very important part uh, of my education. And in addition to that. Um, after I graduated college and after I came home, I had these two little people. <laughs> I got married and had these two little people. And it was, um, it was helpful to me um, to be at Howard um, because I then taught there. I taught there at 22, at the age of 22. Wow. Um, and Howard did not have a Ph.D. program uh, in psychology. And I went to the University of Maryland uh, where they, where they did have a Ph.D. program in neuropsychology. And University of Maryland was interesting at that time. They had not seen many people of color in their, in their Ph.D. program at the time. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, it, you know, I, it, it was the work that I was interested in, and um, I had wonderful mentors at, uh, at the University of Maryland. In fact, I went back just last year and spoke at the University of Maryland at the uh, invitation of the person who was my Ph.D. thesis advisor mm. uh, at Maryland. So I've had a, a good experience wow. um, at, at the University of Maryland. Yes. I'd like to ask you, because I'm a former director of communications with the American Red Cross, I was deployed in during disasters, so uh. it it has a very special place in my heart, and I believe it does mean something to you, too. Absolutely. Can you share with us what your relationship has been? And was your dad one of the reasons that you were drawn to the work that the Red Cross does? Uh, indeed, the the history... Um, you, you recall that my father's uh, blood 
uh, uh, let me just go back just a little bit. Um, my dad graduated from Amherst. He went on to McGill Medical School, in, and uh, at McGill, he got interested in uh, shock and blood loss. Uh, he went on uh, to Columbia University where he did a thesis in banked blood, uh, and what he dem- demonstrated was that uh, in very, by very, very careful research, uh, the manner in which blood could be preserved, whole red blood, um, for how long and with what problems and um, how to make sure uh, it was safe considering temperature, etc. And he also um, discovered that the yellow substance, plasma, uh, which is removed from the blood and doesn't have uh, red blood cells, uh, can be dried, uh, and it can be reconstituted. Uh, that work was very important uh, because we were in the Second World War and because our soldiers were dying on the battlefield. Um, whole red blood requires blood typing. You know, are you, uh, are you A, are you B, are you A, B, are you... Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you just can't do that on the battlefield, and you can't refrigerate it on the battlefield. Um, plasma requires no blood typing, and it can be reconstituted with water on the battlefield. So that that discovery was what really changed um, the trajectory of of deaths, uh, many thousands of lives saved on the battlefield. Um, the secretaries of, of of war and army um, at the time indicated that. Um, there could be no blood uh, donation by by African Americans, um, <clears throat> and my father um, really protested, as many other people did as well, including uh, Bill Hasty, who was at the War Department and became the first um, African American federal court judge. Um, <clears throat> my father said, "There's no scientific reason for segregation of blood." Period. Mm. Mm. Um, that rule was changed. Uh, so that African Americans could give blood, but they couldn't; um, their blood couldn't be made available to white soldiers. My father mm. said, "This there is no scientific reason for this, because the uh, um, the army and the navy, the surgeons general of the army and the navy, uh, were were the ones who had made that distinction. The Red Cross was bound to follow that, um, <clears throat> and." The, the rule was changed uh, after some time and after some pressure. Um, but the work of the Red Cross uh, was extraordinary. And my, father, um, my father's work um, came at the same time that the Red Cross uh, itself was, was being constri- conscripted, if you would, um, by the War Department. Uh, so their trajectories were very much uh, the same. Uh, <clears throat> my dad's work uh, has been recognized by the Red Cross. Um, the issue of why he left the Red Cross is one which is uncertain because my father never talked about it. Um, and I see that in his writings, uh, and I have many of his memorabilia here. Um, that he never talked about the reason that he left the, the Red Cross. Um, I honor the work of the Red Cross because of the importance which it has in the life of every single American in this country and in other countries. 
Um, I have been an honorary member of the Red Cross in the Washington chapter uh, for a very long time, and I even uh, worked in their uh, banked bone uh, um, uh, research component. Not worked in it, but advocated for it. Um, and I have spent a lot of time going around the country um, making sure that um, African Americans were actually giving blood. And <clears throat> so you might you might wonder if there was an African American man whose work was so important in saving lives, why would it be that African Americans would be reluctant uh, mm-hmm. to, to 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 give blood? And that we've been learning uh, recently also, many have been learning recently also, is because of a number of things. First of all, the Tuskegee experience, uh, mm-hmm. experiments, which mm-hmm. uh, allowed um, um, African-American men with syphilis to be untreated um, and, and essentially um, part of experiments uh, which did not recognize their uh, you know, humanness. Um, the fact that others have felt that my father was denied admission to an all-white hospital at the time of his accident in 1950. My father um, was driving his three residents to uh, Tuskegee uh, for a conference, and this is 1950. Um, Along the highway in the south, there were very few places for african-americans to lay their heads not hotels not motels and so they were driving all night um and early in the morning my father fell asleep at the wheel and um the accident was a grievous one in which the the car actually crushed him um and the the notion that he was denied admission to a hospital or turned away from um, a hospital is is a myth which my mother had always um, disabused people of. Um, there was a, and there continues to be, a two-tiered system of health care delivery in the South. Um, and so I have, I've never wanted to release the South from guilt over its usual behavior. But in this instance, because my father's uh, residents were known, uh, and and because the Kernodal brothers who treated him knew of him, uh, he he was treated in a way that was probably different um, than other African Americans. And a book called One Blood, um, much much later, uh, identified a reason or a possible reason for the myth, which was that there was a a gentleman about four months later on the same highway um, who was in a serious accident. uh, And in the South, there were beds set aside for people of color and beds set aside for whites. This gentleman was was seriously injured and was denied admission to Duke University Hospital because there were no more beds, in quote, for black patients. And he did die. Uh, mm-hmm. as a result of being turned away. And uh, the, the book One Blood has explained that um, Spencer loved the author, who did a Ph.D. thesis at Duke University on this, um, said that um, she believed that this was the reason for the myth. 
So there's another reason that um, African Americans um, are not donors because they believe in this myth. So it's Tuskegee, it's this myth about Dr. Drew, um, and there is an issue of spirituality. Um, And that's what I learned as I spoke at Red Cross installations across the country, that they're, they're for people who, have, who are deeply religious, there is, and, and this was particularly with respect to bone marrow, because I was, I was trying to get people of color uh, to get on the registry because the best possibility of a match uh, is someone of like genetic um, background. Um, and what I found was there was such a reluctance because there is, for deeply religious people, the notion that you don't interfere with the body um, in in that manner. And so there were three reasons that we found that African Americans have this reluctance. And now this this period of, of vaccine and reluctance is one mm-hmm. um, which uh, the medical establishment is now understanding um, much more clearly, um, and really realizing why it is that many African Americans have such a distrust of the medical community. Uh, so th- this is this is now something that, like so much else that is going on now, the covers have come off of our un- of of our hidden understanding of many of these issues, and. In fact, the fact that the covers have come off and we see is the way that we change. Well, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Doctor, we're running out of time here. And statehood activists will yell at me tomorrow if I don't talk to you about D.C. statehood. You were on the council for 20 years uh, you were on the council during some of the worst times in Washington where the Financial Control Board uh, took over. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the Financial Control Board is, it was basically uh, martial law on the District of Columbia. Congress could uh, interfere and, and, and do whatever it wanted with what was going on in the council with the mayor's office. Uh, tomorrow... We have a hearing, as you know, in the House of Representatives on a statehood bill that's been put in by our delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Um, What do you think of all this? You've been involved in the struggle so long. As activists, we all feel like we're getting closer and closer and closer to statehood. Do you feel that as well? Oh, I do. Uh, And and I, as I said at, at the beginning, I congratulate you and every other person who has um, believed um, that the District of Columbia voters de- uh, deserve the same rights as every other voter uh, in this country. But we've come to a point where it looks like there's a corner that has been turned um, in this uh, after all of the, uh, of the energy. And I believe one of the most important things that I see here is that you cannot let go of a vision. You cannot um, be swayed by people who say this is never going to happen. You have to say, this is what we believe. This is what we're going to continue to push. This is where we need your help. This is where we need you to reach out. We believe this is a vision which is 
uh, a democratic principle for this country. So look at it this way, voter. Do you want two senators to vote for you as every other uh, state has? Do you think your voice ought to be heard um, on budgets and on legislation in the federal government? Don't you want a voice? And one of the things that disturbs me uh, a little bit is that people get mired in the issue of how you would execute on this. What would a state be like? How many votes would you have on on the legislative body? How would the legislative body be constructed? That's not the, the initial issue. The initial issue is how do we get the votes on the Senate, right, to make yes. sure that um, this becomes a reality. And so don't, don't um, labor the issue with all of these other issues, which can only come to pass after we succeed. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out how we first succeed. Right. Let's figure out how, if you have relatives in Idaho and Indiana and and Georgia and California, how about calling them and how about getting uh, them before their uh, Democratic and Republican bodies and uh, persuading them that there is a reason? How about Democratic parties? Because. Uh, Republicans are have been historically opposed and are still opposed because they don't want two more liberals, they don't want two more urban people, they're not excited about two more uh, black folks, and so they've always been opposed to statehood. But what I think, now that we are so unfortunately um, partisan, Democrats now come to understand that it's not about worrying about how you execute on it it's about getting there <laughs> it's about getting those votes it's about well, rounding yeah. up your people all across the country to understand the issue so and and i keep thinking uh when i read i read a lot of those comments um uh marie and michael in the paper about statehood and i thought uh-huh. this is not an issue these are not issues. What, what's the matter with you guys? Do you not understand what it means to have two people? What would have happened if we didn't have uh, um, the two Georgia senators there? Mm-hmm. Right. What would have happened? Yep. And so I think people need to, to um, be reminded, you know, that you win first. <laughs> and then you figure out all of the other Right. Yeah, get through the um, finish line thing. and then worry about the details. Yeah, you win first. Let's win first. Let's <laughs> yes. get those two first. Well, that's the perfect way to end the end show. We're, show. Out of, yeah. we're out of time. Good luck and, tomorrow, and, by the way. And, yeah, and yes. that's, that should be our slogan, win first. Yes. Yes. new slogan. Yes. So uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Charlie. What an honor. Jarvis. What a privilege. Really, you honor us by your presence. And one show is certainly not enough for you. So we hope you'll come back again sometime so we can finish our discussion. But thank you so much for being on our show. And well, I'm so delighted. Chat. And Maria, I am so delighted to have been with you. And I will tell Thanks you that so. being a mom 30 years ago wasn't quite 
uh, I wasn't quite a walk in the park either. <laughs> uh, going to them being a professional, as you well as you well know, and thank you both for really, really extraordinary work. Thank you. Well, so thank much. you, Dr. Thank Jarvis. You. What an honor. And you know what? We leave our show every week with a song, and this goes out to every statehood supporter in America. Uh, in honor of our hearing tomorrow and in honor of Dr. Charlene Drew Jarvis, here is Nina Simone with I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. See you next week. <laughs>